3: Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast from The Times, I'm Matt Chorley. This week, we're discussing uh, reshuffles, Scotland, and whether or not John is going to get his seat in the House of Lords. Spoiler alert, no, he isn't. But we'll come on to that shortly. A couple of things I've got to tell you about first. The Times is running a series of masterclasses uh, via Times Plus. The first is called Making a Top Charting Podcast. Uh, maybe I should go along with this. Uh, Richard Herring is running it over the weekend of February the 29th to March the 1st. If you want to get tickets to it, go to mytimesplus.co.uk to book your place and you may find me and producer Alex uh, sitting in the audience taking notes I'd also like to say a special hello to uh, Becky in the Emirates who posted a review on iTunes saying uh, without a weekly dose of match in friends I would feel every inch of the 4,354 miles that lie between my decade-long home in Abu Dhabi and the Westminster bubble. The final bong of Brexit happened to mark my 10-year anniversary as an expat. So, And she thought that was a momentous enough occasion to want making her first ever podcast review. I won't go on to repeat the nice things she said about us, but if you want to post a review on iTunes it will actually help us up slightly up the charts which would mean that we didn't need to go to the Richard Harry thing so please do that on iTunes if you can right down to the podcast this week delighted to be joined by James Starkey an escapee from the government a former special advisor most recently at the Home Office to Pretty Patel he'll discuss what Boris Johnson should do with the reshuffle and why he should possibly think small Kieran Andrews is the Scottish political editor of the Times. He'll try and explain what on earth is going on with Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP. Plus, Esther Webber, Red Box reporter, is here to totally predictably talk about what's happening in the House of Lords, uh, which is uh, Esther's favourite pet subject, and nobody knows more about it uh, than she does. But let's kick off with what is going to be happening later this week—the reshuffle—and this is James Starkey. <laughs>
1: The Prime Minister doesn't need to make big changes in his forthcoming reshuffle. Whether it's my former boss Priti Patel in the Home Office, my other former boss Dominic Raab in the FCO, or my other former boss Michael Gove in the Cabinet Office, many Ministers are working effectively and helping the Prime Minister to deliver on his stonking majority. This is more about keyhole surgery, fine tuning. Don't forget, it's the Prime Minister that put in place the current Cabinet just six months
3: ago. This is one of the weird things about this reshuffle is that everyone it 's been talked up at various points as being very dramatic, but he chose all these people himself mm. it 's not like he inherited you know a mixed bag and he finally wants to clear it out no exactly and if you remember
1: um, of all of us in various ways would have been close to it, it was quite a dramatic it was
3: pretty brutal
1: reshuffle in itself at the time it wasn't it wasn 't a i 've just taken over i 'm going to make a couple of changes. you saw wide range changes across the whole cabinet. So it's very much his cabinet, I would argue. Um, And I think whether you look at Grant Chaps in transport, um, Robert Jenrick, I think, is doing amazing work at MHCLG. I think there's a range of ministers that are actually really quietly
3: delivering. And we know from some of the briefing that that's what Downing Street wants. The big difference between when he picked his cabinet in July was that Don Cummings wasn't involved in that because he sort of came in around the same time. And quite a lot of the talk around this reshuffle has been, you know, that Dom wants fewer people attending cabinet. He wanted to only have six people each running a super department or whatever, and ministers shouldn't go on the TV and the radio and all that. You've worked with Dom. What part Mm. do you think he is playing in this? Well, I would say one, having worked with Dom, and you
1: read the, the, the things in the paper about him, is... There's a lot of stuff that gets written by a certain advisor, which is not necessarily true. Um, you know, people have a view of his personality. I worked with him. He was fantastic to work for on Vote Leave. Um, and you'll know, speaking to people, people that worked with him will run through a big wall for him. I take with a pinch of salt a lot of the stuff that, that, I, that I read. I think what they want to make sure is that the ministers are out there delivering, not spending too much time worrying about their media. And so perhaps some of this, perhaps, is a kind of shot across the bow. Um, you know, we're, this is the kind of thing we we'll would be looking at in the future. Here's the reshuffle. Let's see how dramatic it is. Like I said,
3: I don't think he needs to make massive changes. Do you think it would been better if the idea it was going to be dramatic hadn't got going? Sort of after the election in December, there was a lot of talk about a massive clear out and cutting the numbers and, you know, the list of half a dozen, almost all women who are going to get the chop. If that doesn't end up happening, does he end up looking like he's bottled it? No, I don't think so. I, I, I mean, I'll say this having been in department at the time some of this was coming out
1: and spoken to other special advisors and ministers, he's probably got a few more hours work out of them since since those <laughs> briefings came, so you, you know, you, it, it depends if you worry about the cosmetics of it maybe you could make that argument, but I think if you're, basically your focus is underline performance, then you could argue that that had the desired effect So do
0: you think this was all like a performance enhancement drive?
3: Well, right? well all <laughs> I'm saying well, it is It would work in most workplaces yeah. if it basically said, if you're not careful, we're going to sack <laughs> you in February, Exactly. Yeah. that would get you maybe I should try that with you Esther <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um,
3: Kieran, um, what do you make of this? Because um, we the reshuffles sort of come and go They always get talked up and, and they're rarely as dramatic as we expect And most people are not paying that much attention
2: Well, I got caught a wee bit on the hop With the last reshuffle Where we were all briefed pretty extensively That David Mundell was safe So I clocked off for the day I'd gone to meet a friend I was sitting in in a pub in, uh, outside of work hours and suddenly the phone goes, oh, running back home to grab grab the laptop, uh, reshuffles. And try or- to
3: work out who Alistair Jack was.
2: <laughs> well, there was a funny thing about um, Alistair Jack in that he doesn't really fit with the idea of Ruth Davidson's Scottish Conservative Party and that, you know, he is essentially, if you want to boil it down to, uh, you know, how you could characterise him from an opponent's point of view. He is your quintessential hunting-shooting-toff. And he has ended up here as a Brexiteer, very much a, a Boris Johnson from, you know, what you said, a kind of Dominic Cummings man, head down, get the job done. Yeah. But not not a great media performer, not someone who goes out and, uh, and makes himself known. Um, so there was a wee bit of shock, not just amongst the journalists, but also amongst a lot of the Scottish Conservatives, who perhaps... We're doing a bit of googling and didn't yeah. quite like what they found
0: <laughs> I remember actually getting a heads up about that um, from another Scottish Tory in Parliament I'm thinking oh my god can this be true and I spelled his name wrong because <laughs> <laughs> I've never written it before <laughs>
2: The other thing, though, I do wonder what you're saying about doesn't need to be a dramatic reshuffle. It's all about getting your head down and working. Is briefing for months in advance that you're going to have a big reshuffle because people aren't doing their job a good example of getting your head down and working and not ending up in the media from whoever's briefing out from Downing Street?
1: Well, I mean, number one, I don't think um, you guys might disagree... But that doesn't actually take up that much of your time. And there are people that are doing those specific jobs to deal with the media. So uh, as a strategy, I don't, I don't think it necessarily negates it. To, to be honest, if you look at number 10, it's quite obvious um, anyone that's been close to it, they have been doing a hell of a amount of work even during the election period you know there was no uh, complacency but it was obvious to me talking to people who either were still in number 10 or the ones or like Dom who was kind of outside of it um, but not fully on the campaign that there was a lot of work going on in terms of looking at what they were going to do the announcement today about HS2 for example
3: What's it like when you are on the inside as a special advisor in the run up to a because like you said you've worked with several different ministers what's going on how much do you know about what your bosses is or isn't doing? Because obviously there is a point when they go into Downing Street. Sure. And presumably you're not there. No,
1: you're not. You're not there. I mean, it did. It does remind me. I don't know how many of your listeners will have watched or remember it. There's a great episode of uh, Yes Minister when they which I think is mo- the most accurate program about working in a in a department, in my view, um, when they're. Looking, looking at the regional, finding it in the newspaper. Today, it's about looking at Twitter. You know nothing. You have no idea. Even the secretaries of State don't know anything. No, there's like. I don't know, four or five people that know what's going on. Otherwise, it's just rumour. You're trying to work out which bits are potentially from the centre, so it might have a grain of truth. But, you know, I spoke to people in government this morning. They're still, you know, they're saying, well,
3: we think this person and this person might go, but we don't know. But... Go on then, what are you hearing this morning? What's your latest intelligence from inside the machine? Well,
1: I, um, there's a view that we might have a new business
3: secretary. So Andrew Ledson is not.
1: Um, uh, these, uh, as I said, these are all very much rumours, and ditto perhaps with the Attorney General. But that's, as you know, been flying around for some time. And, but the wider view was just that there there won't be particularly big changes. You know, we know we need a new Culture Secretary, so he's got he has a Prime Minister has a cabinet post to give away, if you like. But other than that, I think the top posts. Um, for sec, home second Chancellor very,
3: very likely to stay the same. And from a, from a special advisor's point of view, which is the most fun department to be in? Because the Home Office strikes me as quite frightening. It is frightening. I mean, it's, very, it's, it's
1: incredibly hectic. As we've seen over the last 24 hours, it would have been very stressful to deal with, I can only imagine, for people in the department. I've always thought, and I've never been in it, I, I mean, I loved working in DEFRA personally, and the view would be, that's a smaller department. Michael was amazing to work for. Um, And just see up close how he works, and it has. And I still stay in touch with many of the civil servants that I worked with because they were just they were just so great to work with. Uh, Having having read um, Damien McBride's fantastic book, Treasury seems like (laughs) a great place. You don't have the day. It seems like you don't have to answer everything of as you do number 10. And so I have worked for, for people where one of the rumours is you might end up at Treasury. It never happens. Um, uh, you start the day maybe going to the, high, the second highest office in the land, you typically end the day exactly where you started <laughs> the day. Um, so that these things are really true. But, look, I mean, I loved both departments that I worked in. You know, it's, kind of, it's, a, it's a real privilege just to work in government in, you know, any aspect, in my view. Oh, I
0: always mention DCMS. Must be quite good because you get to go to Commonwealth Games and whatever else. It's definitely popular ever. for the freebies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can go to
3: a lot of theatre shows and musicals and whatever. <laughs> yeah, I believe so. Award
0: ceremonies.
1: Yeah, yeah. exactly. You get, so. you get to
3: go to the Brits rather than the NFU annual conference. Although I know, a, NFU annual conference is fantastic. Although I can really recommend well, it. Well, as, as I covered many in the past, I would agree. And also, DEF will always had the best nibbles. It's very true. Because very he's true. showing off the best of British. Well, Esther Keir, which departments would you like to be in?
2: I think of Bugsy DCMS. <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: you're not allowed to just say Scotland, Keir. No
2: although, no, although the Scotland office has the best office in Whitehall. Uh, Dover true. House that is, is, is tremendous. Yeah. So yeah. If you're, because Nick Clegg muscled his way into um, taking a side room there when he was Deputy Prime Minister. Uh, where He had his rowing machine installed in there so he could look out over... Horse Guards Parade. See, I'd quite fancy DCMS for the trips to the Brits as well. But if I can't, if I can't be your junior minister there, <laughs> Esther, I, you know what? go for the Justice Department. Just it might be stressful, but you know, imagine, imagine the power you would have.
3: I've always thought because there's been a lot of conversation with the, like, the Labour the Labour leadership contest and who who does Keir Starmer have and who would you know who do you have as Shadow Chancellor, Chancellor Shadow Chancellor Treasury strikes, but I could I reckon I could have a go at most departments, but. Don't don't confidence. With, with the Treasury, I mean, I'd be like, I mean, no good, but with the Treasury, <laughs> you do have to like understand the numbers, don't you? Yeah. And uh, you do need to have had a favourite economist and to know your... Yeah. You know, it's difficult... Ideally. Uh, yeah, okay. ideally. I mean, that is... Yeah, we'll wait and see who Keir Starver ends up choosing. But So the Treasury strikes me as one that you really do need to be, you know, somebody who gets the economy in a way that you could go into education and read up on it and get up to speed quite quickly.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, da- it's a daunting ministry to go into, I can imagine. Like you said, it's, you know, there's a lot of technical detail. But, I mean, whilst I, I definitely take your point, I think you need to understand these issues. My learning from government would be you need to spend the time to know your area, whether that's definitely the Home Office, etc. But don't forget, in any department, you have thousands of, dare I use the word, experts behind you able to help you understand this stuff, provide briefings. Um, I think when they do... The you know Treasury when they do the budget and so on, you have a political person and uh, um, a civil servant who is a, doing a, a, the briefing. Yeah, who's yeah. who's an expert in that area. So of course you need to understand the policy area. I think that goes for anything. I spent um, a huge amount of time at DEFRA reading up on environmental issues on farming issues, spending time speaking to people. Ditto on uh, immigration, which was my area at the Home Office, um, and, and some of the other areas that I covered but you know you do have and you realize it when you come out of government you do have incredible resources to lean on and really great people in terms in in the civil service
3: and actually sometimes some of the best media spads that we deal with are the ones who don't consider themselves to be experts so we'll sit in a meeting and just say sorry what is this Hmm. knowing that that's the question the journalists will ask and it quite often if they just say look i really don't know but i know just a person to ask that's just as good as them trying to pretend they're a great policy expert. Well, we'll be interested to see what happens by the end of the week and whether or not uh, anyone other than Andrea Leadsom has had bad news. We'll see how that uh, pans out. Uh, we shall expect, we think, on Thursday. Uh, let's go north of the border, though. Kieran uh, is down in London, uh, paying a, a round boosting visit to the Times <laughs> building. Let's take a look at what's happening with the S&P. This is Kieran Andrews.
2: A health service under a cloud of problem-hit hospitals and missed waiting times targets, an education system that has been reviewed by the OECD and a finance secretary who was forced to resign hours before he was due to deliver his budget after he was caught bombarding a schoolboy with messages. After almost 13 years in government, is the SNP finally falling apart? Probably not.
3: Kieran, I can't think you're just talking Scotland down, (laughs) Uh, and uh, any criticism of the SNP is obviously a a huge slight on Scotland. I mean, from our you know hundreds of miles away viewpoint, it does seem as if a whole load of things are coming together to be you know create this sort of perfect storm of bad news. The SNP, but then we did think that intermittently last year and the year before, and then they win more seats in the election and.
2: The s like I said, has been in government for 13 years. And like any government who's been in power for that long, the record is starting to catch up with them. You know, the, the issues around the health service and the education sector are not new. These have been dogging the s p for a while, but they're just starting to stick a little bit. And where the s has been almost completely Teflon coated previously, you can see somebody's taken a bit of a scourer, to to the side of it and yet they're still polling 50% the last 3 opinion polls that were done by 3 different companies comfortably ahead of everyone else which says something about the state of the opposition party in Scotland that probably the biggest challenge to Nicola Sturgeon's authority has come from within her own ranks with the likes of Joanna Cherry and Angus McNeil, her MPs down here, questioning our strategy on a second independence referendum
3: And just to explain for people who, who for some reason haven't been following that debate um, what is the difference of opinion within the SNP?
2: Well, currently Nicola Sturgeon has requested the powers to hold a second referendum the um, you know, powers over the constitution are reserved to Westminster Boris Johnson is saying no, no chance, no referendum, whilst I'm in power. Some in our party are suggesting that the Scottish Parliament should just pass a bill to hold a referendum anyway and let uh, the UK government challenge that in court. Nicola Sturgeon is very wary of doing that, not least because of the example we saw in Catalonia and the, you know, the, the, the fallout from the referendum there. She says she wants to deliver independence, not just a referendum. And the there's, there's a bit of tension over basically how patient people are willing to be in the SNP.
3: What were well, the side that uh, Joanna Cherry and Angus McNeil? So,
2: so so Joanna Cherry has been uh, she's walked quite a fine line She's the the SNP's um, Home Affairs spokeswoman at Westminster and is seen as a potential successor to Nicola Sturgeon. She has really been pushing the idea of um, laying down a bill in Parliament, just pressing ahead with a, a, a referendum. And letting it run through the courts If it's deemed illegal, drop it But it should fight through the courts And she has had some success in this area She was behind the prorogation um, Legal challenge that ended up uh, You know, ended up with the Supreme Court Finding that it was illegal to prorogue Parliament So, you know, she has reason to be confident Going down that route Angus McNeil just wants a plan B And Angus likes to uh, Likes to shout about things from uh, the back benches And start some (laughs) trouble Which is mainly what he's doing at the moment
3: James, how much thought is going in inside the Westminster government into the question of the union and stopping Scotland drifting away as a, as a result of Brexit?
1: I think you could see. I think you could see during the election that it's it, it's a really important issue. Looking at the actions and some of the things that the Prime Minister said, that they, you know, whether even with Theresa May, to be fair, you know, it's taken very seriously. It's taken very personally for Prime Ministers. You know, the the idea of keeping that. That precious union is every, the phrase that everybody will use, keeping that together. I and I, I also think if you you will note that there's definitely a push in government to really look outside of Westminster, whether that uh, whether that's Scotland, whether that's Wales, or, you know,
3: or the North, as as people in London seem to call yeah, the, the fifth country in uh, in the UK, as, as, yeah,
1: as if I grew up in a different country in the Midlands, but um, <laughs> but although sometimes it does feel like it, but um, I think. there's a push to look outside Westminster to try and think about what's needed, whether it be for Scotland or whether it be for the the north of England or the Midlands, what's needed in terms... I read your piece this morning on buses, and you you made the valid point that too often too much policy is formed by people whose only world view is London. And I definitely think... The prime minister talks has talked about kind of leveling up. It's a Very important thing to him it was all throughout the election, and Dom. And you think you've got a Downing Street with various people in there that probably has more people. I don't know the stats on this, but feels like it has more people who are thinking about or oh, from outside London than at many times before. You know, they're not. You've got a lot of people in government as advisors now who are not your typical special advisors through Cthq etc.
3: What do you think about this, Esther? Because, I mean, it's just a sort of, if in doubt, there's always a story somewhere that <laughs> Nicola Sturgeon has gasped for another referendum.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the... And Boris
3: Johnson just seems turn to, to say no.
0: Yeah, I mean, we saw, was it last week, that there was some polling numbers showing mm-hmm. yes in the lead again. And, well, I wonder if that's a bit kind of over-ambitious at the moment Nick, in terms of people's bullishness in the SNP, because... Surely, if anything, over the past couple of years, we've seen how horrendous the experience of trying to hold a referendum and then implement it can be. And we've also seen how difficult it can be for a small country to break away from a larger... Well, that, um,
3: is that having cut through, Keira, If if you were sitting in Scotland and you were in favour of independence might you look at how complicated Britain taking itself out of the EU is and think, it would be nice if we could throw a switch, but it turns out it's quite difficult breaking up a...
2: There's probably a sweet spot that Brexit needs to land in, which is just bad enough that a group of people in Scotland and the SNP are very much targeting the former soft, no-voters, middle-class Remainers, Remainers being the strident point, and they're the people who have switched from no to yes, largely. So Brexit needs to be bad enough to convince them yes, what well, it's doing independence, but Brexit can't be so bad that they go <laughs> oh, 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 actually, actually, hold on, hold on, yeah, yeah this is a, this is a terrible idea. And we have seen movement both ways in the polling that shows that remainers are switching from no to yes, but also there are leave yes voters who at the moment are switching the other way and say, well, hold on, why do we want to get rid of one union to join another one, and for example, give up fishing rights?
1: Exactly. That, that was I was going to ask you, Kevin. I mean. Number one, you talks about the the record up there, and it, it, if you look at some of the stats that come out of the the uh, out of Scotland on the SNP's record, they're pretty terrible. I mean, we know we've seen the Andrew Neil clip with uh, with Nicholas Fegin and so on, uh, holding her to account on those. Yet they don't. You don't seem to see that much movement in the polls. So, so I'd my, uh, I wanted to ask you, if Ruth was still there, Ruth Davidson was still there, might we see? more inroads, and secondly, if they put so much stock into the EU option, you know, part of the reason we're going to leave is to join the EU, surely there's, you're guaranteed to lose a decent swathe of, um, of independence voters who don't want to be just joined to Brussels.
2: Yeah, on the Ruth Davidson question, certainly what what you would have if you had Ruth Davidson as leader of the Scottish Conservatives would, would be a credible alternative First Minister. Whether it would be enough to push... The you know the, the Tories high enough in the polls in Scotland is debatable. It would need to be the best day of their lives and some disaster to hit the SNP for the Tories to out-poll them. But it would be a possibility. You know, however, however slim it would be a possibility. That's not the case now. The Scottish Tories currently don't have a leader, and um, we'll see how Jackson Carlot or Michelle Ballantyne get on. Who, who's your money on? Yeah. Uh, this- Jack- Jackson Carlow is certainly the, the favourite He was Ruth Davidson's deputy He is backed by almost every Tory parliamentarian in Scotland But it seems a bit closer Michelle Ballantyne has kicked off a kind of anti-establishment campaign Said the election result in Scotland was was poor We lost half our MPs We need to um, do something different And you know she's a she was a Brexiteer She was a Boris Johnson supporter Early doors when people weren't in Scotland and there's a bit of nervousness in the Carlaw camp so it will be closer than you might think but if Jackson Carlaw can't win it he should be really asking himself why when <laughs> almost everything, almost all of the machine is ostensibly behind him he's still interim leader, he's fighting a leadership contest as leader. Right. You'd asked about uh, public services as well we're sitting here today where as I said we've got one hospital in Scotland where they've brought in um, two outside experts because of 8 day infection related incidents of happened there, a flagship hospital commissioned under the SNP in Glasgow where a child is dying, it's been linked to a hospital and acquired infection. You've got a sick kids hospital in Edinburgh, which still hasn't opened because of problems with the build. Um, the issues with the education service at the moment. The Queensferry Crossing, which connects Edinburgh to Fife in the north of Scotland, is closed because it's icy in Scotland. Um, <laughs> and, and yet, there's well, so, I'm such sure, a I'm of sure the bridge
3: from Scotland to Northern Ireland will have no no problems <laughs> uh, like that. Um, and, and we should, because you mentioned it in your intro, we should just touch on Derek MacKay briefly as well. A man that many people might not have heard of previously, but have heard of now, but for all the wrong reasons.
2: Yes, Derek Mackay was seen in many quarters as the favourite to succeed Nicola Sturgeon as First Minister. He had risen through the ranks of the SNP very quickly and he was caught. He sent um, 270 messages on Instagram and Facebook to a 16-year-old schoolboy. These were given to the sun and obviously he resigned from government on the eve of the budget and now his future as an MSP is, is under question, understandably. The problem this causes internally for the s is the succession planning.
3: Well, I was about to ask you that because I'd, I I was sort of dimly aware of him but only realised that he was seen as the obvious successor while reading the stories about why he was resigning. So who if if Nicola Sturgeon were to fall under the proverbial bus, who is there in the next ranks? Or maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe we, we, people thought the same thing when Alex Salmon stood down, that she could never match him and yet she's exceeded him.
2: Yeah, well... Nicola Sturgeon was always seen as, as a successor that was yeah. part of the, the process you know, um, she was the protege it, it's difficult, in in Holyrood there's only really John Swinney who was leader before and as Deputy First Minister who is an obvious safe pair of hands what might be vital is ahead of the next Hollywood election is the Edinburgh Central SNP membership which sounds like a very small electorate but they might have to choose between Angus Robertson the former Westminster leader and Joanna Cherry who we mentioned before as their candidate for Holyrood 2021 uh, which is the next Scottish parliamentary elections whoever wins that would be the obvious successor to Nicola Sturgeon
3: I feel like we're learning a lot today coming up well let's talk about uh, John Burko and find out what we can learn about him that we haven't already heard a million times uh, before we'll be back after the break welcome back you listening to the Red Box podcast with me Matt Jolly joined in the studio by James Starkey Kieran Andrews and this is Esther Webber
0: Anyone who imagined we'd be seeing less of John Bercow now that he's quit the speaker's chair will be sorely disappointed. He's responded to accusations in the press of bullying, which he denies, by popping up on every radio and TV outlet possible. Nothing to do, of course, with the fact that his memoirs have just come out, which he has used to take pot shots at almost everyone he used to work with including clerks and parliamentary staff
3: how lovely it is to see him back on the tv and uh, the, the thing that strikes me as to, listening to the various interviews that john Burke is doing remember only to plug his book is how he thinks in his mind he's dispelling the idea of him being a pompous arrogant uh overbearing oily uh Irritant, uh, who was who looked down on everyone around him. And yet, in every interview, he just reinforces this impression.
0: It's really quite... I found it quite revelatory. It's like, I always thought before this, that the kind of caricature of him in the press was a bit overdone, possibly. And that he can actually be like that, be this kind of tendency towards the self-aggrandizing, <laughs> shall we say. It's actually worse than I thought. (laughs) (laughs) And every interview is kind of... (laughs) Played into that. And even the book, which I have read parts of, not in full, but just giving You have to keep having a shower with <laughs> Julie <in> between chapters. <laughs> well, just giving through, I happened upon a piece where he referred to one of his early speeches as an MP as being typical of the Burko style. <laughs> 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 and it's this kind of thing that really kind of plays into his critics' hands, even if we leave aside the allegations that have been made against him.
3: What's the view inside government of John Burko, James? Well, I think... You're not there anymore, he's not there anymore, so you can finally tell us... Sure, I mean, the truth.
1: as someone who worked on the Vote Leave campaign, I would say I'm probably a bit biased against him. De- look, definitely, bias is all
3: the rage now. Apparently, is, it's like you're fine. To- he was so
1: exactly. It's fine to be biased. I think he wasn't viewed positively. Um, I'm, I mean, uh, uh, as Esther said, self awareness is clearly not a strong point <laughs> of of Burko. You know, the whole this whole point about well, I should have a period because everyone else has. Number one. You know, if I'm just a general member of the public, you, if your reason for having the peerage is anyone else that's done my job before has got it... You're slightly out of touch, I would suggest. Uh, I think you know th- that's just one of the things that shows that how, how
3: out of touch. But there is. is also something very funny about him in particular complaining about centuries-old traditions not to exactly.
1: Well, I think I can't remember the quote he had, but you know, we won't. We'll never make progress if we always stick on a convention or something, something akin to that. And now he's citing convention as a reason for him having a peerage. I think the truth is he, they went through that parliamentary process. I don't think it would be a surprise to say. You know, I I 100% agreed with what the Prime Minister said about the last parliament. It needed to be... It was going nowhere. I mean, if they'd have managed to block Brexit, at least they would have done something. Yeah. At least there would have been a point in it. The problem with the last parliament, and he assisted them, was they just never made a decision. And they wondered why... Sorry if this sounds like a rant,
3: but they wondered why people came back and gave the Prime Minister such a large majority. He basically, he basically was the ref who kept on trying to give one yeah, side an yeah. advantage. Yeah, and he they was, never came close to scoring. And
0: story. I think related to that, it's like um, when we did various stories about him upending precedent and about the bullying allegations, he had this wave of defem- defenders, mainly Ooh. from the Remain side, And I think he's reached the point where he's even scared them off. Like, they're not coming out in the same way for him now. Um, And you just feel that even if he kept a lid on it slightly, slightly more, he'd have more of a case.
3: Yeah. I think think... It's
0: gone too far the other way.
3: And it's sort of amazing, Kieran, even in some of the extracts of his uh, book, um, which I'm not going to tell you what it's called, because I don't want anyone to buy it, but if... (laughs) (laughs) He he sort of tra- challenges the idea that he was biased and actually insisted treated everyone fairly. And then there's these sort of pen portraits of David Cameron and Boris Johnson and Theresa May, all of which are vicious and gratuitous. I mean, I'm not averse to being gratuitously rude about some of our political leaders but the sort of vitriol that he piles on them while also then heaping praise on people like i think it's quite nice about jeremy corbyn and gordon brown it's the lack of self like he's it's so much more self-revelatory than he thinks it's essentially like alan partridge's memoirs
2: <laughs> except uh, a lot smaller yes um, <coughs> it's, it's a fascinating thing and I, I was always watching this from afar so glued to um i'm not saying that proceedings at the Scottish Parliament weren't fascinating, but I spent a lot of time watching uh watching what was going on at Westminster and watching John Berkel in, in the chair, you could see it seeping through. And the idea that like you say, you you can you can write your book and you say, oh no, listen, I I ran everything down the line. But all of them. All of them. No, no. Hated them. Awful. Terrible human <laughs> beings. These people were great. Obviously I never let my personal feelings get in the way. It just so happens that every knife edge decision I I made went in the way of the people I've said I quite like.
3: And just quickly Esther, on the, the question of the bullying allegations, there's sort of two things happening this week. One is the decision being made on who does and doesn't get a peerage, potentially, and the other is the changing of the rules of how bullying allegations are going to be dealt with.
0: Yes, so the House of Lords Appointments Commission is meeting this week. And I think we understand it's all but guaranteed that he won't get a peerage, simply because they're not in the business of recommending peerages for people who are, who are under investigation by regulators, as he is and the other significant thing that's happening this week is the sort of management body of the House of Commons, which is called the Commons Commission, has finally come out in favour of a plan for taking MPs out of their own complaints system, which is very important because still at this point MPs have the final say on what happened to any of their colleagues who are accused of treating people badly.
3: This move is described as both sort of seismic and sort of depressing that, it was e- that it's even not the case already. James? One of the other things about Birko that should be pointed out is
1: we don't know the validity of the allegations that are made against him. But it was him that prevented himself from being investigated. So if he had have allowed himself to be investigated in Parliament, this would have been done and dusted. No one could level these, uh, these accusations at him now and prevent this peerage because we would have had it all before. So the great irony of the reforms, which I think most people in Westminster that I know would say are massively welcome. I mean, HR is something that has not particularly moved quickly in Westminster, I would argue. The irony is... It's his own hold-up on this process that has meant he now may not get a period certainly at this time of asking.
3: Well, it'll be very sad for him, and I'm glad we've uh, I am glad we've sorted that out. So no big reshuffle this week, no obvious successor to Nicholas Sturgeon, and hilariously no period for John Burko. Well, on that happy note, uh, that's all we've got time for this week. My massive thanks to James Starkey, Esther Webber, and Kieran Andrews. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, uh, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you listen, so you don't miss future episodes. And sign up to our, the morning email that Esther and I do, Redbox. Go to thetimes.kuk forward slash Redbox. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye.